Section 4 of Life of John Churchill, Duke of Marlborough, by Louise Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 2, James the Second, Part 2. Little by little, James the Second showed men what he had meant by his promise to defend the Constitution and the Church of England. He wished to make himself strong by means of a standing army and in a few months increased the number of soldiers in England from 6,000 to nearly 20,000. In violation of the Test Act, Catholics were allowed to hold commissions in the English army. The Commons, who at their first meeting, after James II's accession, had seemed willing to do anything for him, now began to show a different spirit. They refused to grant the supplies which the king needed for the support of his army, and criticized in severe terms the king's speech from the throne, till he in anger prorogued them. James II now felt himself at liberty to act as he chose. He asserted that by virtue of his dispensing power, he might admit Roman Catholics to all offices. He presented them even to ecclesiastical benefices, and set up again the old court of high commission by which he hoped to force resisting churchmen to submission. Those of his ministers who objected to his measures and showed themselves unwilling to attack the rights of the Church of England were one by one dismissed from their offices and their places filled by Catholics. At last, on April 4, 1687, he published a declaration of a general indulgence, which annulled all penal laws and all religious tests. In this way he hoped to gain over the Protestant dissenters, but the great mass of them loved their country too well to care for an indulgence which was granted only by the arbitrary use of the royal power. In the midst of the deep anxiety occasioned by these measures, the Whigs began to look eagerly across the water to the only man who could give them any help. William of Orange had long watched with interest the struggle of the different factions in England. He cannot be said to have sided with either party. He was neither Whig nor Tory. His whole being was absorbed in one thought, opposition to France. He alone amongst European statesmen saw clearly the danger with which Europe was threatened by the power of Louis XIV. He knew that the struggle would soon come when it would have to be decided whether or no Louis XIV was to bring the vast dominions of the Spanish monarchy under the rule of the House of Bourbon and to order European politics at his pleasure. In this struggle it would be of immense importance what side England might take, and it was necessary, if England were to play an important part in European politics, that her king and parliament should be at peace. Both Louis XIV and William of Orange realized this, and whilst Louis XIV's policy, therefore, was to fan the discord between king and parliament, William did all in his power to bring them to an agreement. He had no sympathy with the pretensions of the Whigs. He himself hoped one day to wear with his wife the crown of England, and he would like it to descend to him without one prerogative impaired. 
but he was willing to sacrifice anything to his great aim, and had always exhorted the King of England to give way to his Parliament rather than attempt to govern without it. He had seen with disgust the support given by many of the Whigs to the claims of Monmouth. To declare Monmouth legitimate would, of course, destroy the right to the crown of England of the Lady Mary, William's wife. William, therefore, had supported the rights of James II, and it was mainly in obedience to his exhortations that Halifax had exerted himself to obtain the rejection of the Exclusion Bill. William watched the struggle of English parties free from the motives by which they were guided. He had no care for England, except in so far as her cooperation was necessary to his purposes. He was one of the greatest statesmen whom Europe has ever seen, and he looked at things from a point of view far above the small party struggles of the day. When almost a boy, he had been called to the head of affairs in Holland, at a moment when the country seemed to lie helpless at the feet of Louis XIV. But his was that kind of courage which shines most brightly in moments when everything seems lost. He had found means to rescue his country from the extremity of her peril, but he knew that the respite was only for a short time. Meanwhile, he must prepare for another struggle. He was a man of indomitable energy and perseverance. Outwardly, of a cold and stubborn nature, he inspired no sympathy in the minds of men. Only the few who were admitted to his intimacy knew the fire which burnt within him the almost religious zeal which animated him in his great projects. His constitution was weak and diseased. He was a constant prey to asthma, but the energy of his powerful mind triumphed over his weak body. His face was furrowed with deep lines of suffering and care, but his brilliant eye, his broad and lofty forehead showed the fire of the mind within. To his wife, the Lady Mary William was bound by the deepest affection. The most perfect confidence reigned between them, and she had made it clear to him that she would not wear the English crown unless he shared it with her. Both William and Mary strongly disapproved of the declaration of indulgence. William himself held decided Calvinistic views, and was in favor of toleration to the English dissenters. But he saw that in publishing the declaration of indulgence, James had usurped a prerogative to which he had no right, and he viewed with alarm and indignation the favor shown to Roman Catholics. Dijkveld, one of the ablest of Dutch diplomatists, was sent to England early in 1687 on a nominal embassy to James II, but with instructions to enter into communications with the leading nobles, both Whigs and Tories. He found everywhere sentiments of profound distrust toward James II, and a growing desire that William would interfere to put an end to the tyranny of the king. Dykvelt returned to The Hague bearing letters to William from many of the leading Englishmen. Amongst others, he took one from Churchill, who was animated by none of that feeling of gratitude or personal devotion that would have led most men to remain under all circumstances faithful to a king to whom they owed everything. James II 
had been Churchill's friend and patron from his earliest youth. But Churchill's ruling passion was ambition both for wealth and power. Under James II, nothing could be hoped for unless he changed his religion, and that was the one point on which he was not willing to give way. He was anxious to make friends in time with the man who he foresaw would before long be the ruler of England. It was of great importance to William to know what side would be taken by Churchill, for the Lady Anne, the next heir to the crown after the Lady Mary, was entirely under the influence of the Churchills, and would be sure to feel as they felt. Churchill's letter explained her opinions as well as his own. The Princess of Denmark, having ordered me to discourse with Monsieur Dykvelt, and to let him know her resolutions, so that he might let your highness and the princess her sister know that she was resolved by the assistance of God to suffer all extremities, even to death itself, rather than be brought to change her religion. I thought it my duty to give you assurances under my own hand that my places and the king's favor I set at naught in comparison of being true to my religion. In all things but this the king may command me, and I call God to witness that even with joy I should expose my life for his service. So sensible am I of his favors, and I think it may be a great ease to your highness and the princess to be satisfied that the princess of Denmark is safe in the trusting of me, I being resolved, although I cannot live the life of a saint, if there be occasion for it, to show the resolution of a martyr. The information and the letters brought by Dykvelt showed William very clearly that sooner or later it would be advisable to interfere decidedly in English affairs, but though one or two rash spirits urged him to do so at once, he determined to wait till he could be sure of complete success. He had no wish to provoke a civil war in England, for that would leave Louis the Fourteenth at liberty to do as he liked on the continent. End of section four.